that they if they wait they'll get more on the other hand it's so enticing it's a marshmallow sitting in front of me and there's no there's nothing really stopping me from eating that marshmallow except for myself but what they found was that they tracked these kids over a long period of time and they found that these four five six-year-olds eventually when they were in high school they did better on the sats uh, long term, they had better body mass index, meaning they were better able to take care of their physical health. They had decreased use of substance abuse in contrast to the children who were who were not able to wait and ate the marshmallow without waiting for the second one. They even had lower rates of divorce than the people who ate the marshmallow without waiting. And one of the important takeaways of this experiment, we'll get to another one a little bit later on, but one of the most important takeaways here is that you can see the seeds of a, an ability to control ourselves for a future gain. The benefits of that within this small child has consequences for future. Not that we can't change it, not that we can't adjust it and improve on it, but that core ability to delay gratification, to push off eating that one marshmallow now in order to have two marshmallows later, that underpins so much of our success in life later on, both in terms of our financial success as well as our relationship success and other successes as well, physical health, etc. So it's really, really important to be able to know how to delay our gratification. Right? Everybody here is in college. For the most part, you might have had opportunities to not go to college and do something in the short term that would make you some money. But you know that by going to college and investing in the four years of hard work, that that will pay dividends in the long run. So you're delaying your instant gratification, putting in difficult work in order to get higher dividends and higher payoffs in the long run. That's an element of this marshmallow test. In terms of why it's so damaging to eat that marshmallow right away, or to put it in Chazal's terms, to give in to our taiva, to give in to our desire. Right? So if you look in the Mishnah and Perkei Avos, quoted here in Avos Dalad Chaf Aleph, Rebbe Lazar HaKapar Omer, HaKinah V'ataiva V'akavod, Motzian Es Adam Min HaOlam. Envy, desire, and honor, the desire for honor, removes a person from this world. So obviously we can spend time talking about how envy does that and how kavo, the pursuit of honor, does it as well. But for now, just focusing on the, the taiva, the, the desire part of it. So when we give in to desire, here the Rambam on the bottom elaborates and says that with all three of these, but again with desire in particular now, they really destroy our ability to think effectively when we have a strong desire, we can't go about our goals. We can't follow through on what we want to follow through on. And then it's hard for us to develop the proper character traits that will help us be successful in life. So Taiva, in an extreme formulation, the Rambam here is saying, it doesn't mean that I, I'm getting removed from, you might say, from the next world, Olam Haba, right, through, through following through on these uh, base desires, I will end up losing my world to come. That might be true, but... More practically speaking, it affects you in this world too. So by not being able to delay our gratification, by not being able to have the self-control, by giving in to all of the temptations, that will negatively affect us in this world. And that's, that's not, it's not just a 
a religious concept. It is a religious concept, like self-control and, and, and committing, you know, uh, to mitzvos and, and staying away from from sin is a religious concept. But I'm framing it in a bigger fra- frame that's rooted within the psychological literature and within the sages and the mefarshim as well. The commentaries is that this is something that's essential to our success in this world. Having self-control will help us now. The question is, we know this, right? We know self-control is important. We know delay of gratification is important. We know that picking up our phone and scrolling for three hours at 12 o'clock at night when we're trying to go to bed is not a good idea, right? But sometimes we do it anyway, right? We know eating this fifth latka or this eighth latka or this tenth jelly donut or whatever is not good for us. But we do it anyway. So really what we want to do is sort of dig deeper to understand not just on a surface level, yes, have self-control and that's good for you, but why are we so bad at it? Maybe I speak for myself, but presumably not, right? Why are we so bad at it? So one conceptualization, as you see in this little cartoon, is that, you know, you finally have self-discipline and then laziness comes in the way. Laziness tells you, just don't work so hard. It's not so important. Just relax. And our self-discipline sort of gives in. Now, this is an oversimplification. The reason why we fail at self-control is not just due to laziness. And I think it's very important to to realize that because sometimes we do just blame it on being lazy or being weak or not having enough willpower. And what you see in the recent psychological literature is that that's not true. It doesn't just have to do with not having willpower. And when framed in this way that I'm lazy, I'm not disciplined, what ends up happening is that we create a self-concept that is weak, that's negative, that doesn't believe in our abilities to, to change. And it's a very incomplete understanding of what self-control is all about. So what we're going to do over the course of the rest of the presentation is to give you a theoretical understanding of at least one model of how we can understand what self-control and self-control failure is about. And then we're going to focus on four pitfalls and the counter strategies that relate to those pitfalls and these concepts you're not going to be aware of yet, but we're going to talk about restraint bias, delayed discounting, slippery slope, and environmental controls. Let's now do one one of these at a time. So first in terms of the model, the overall concept. So we have, this is based on the conceptualization of Walter Michel, who was the psychologist who we quoted from in the beginning, from the first slide, about the marshmallow test. So he has uh, an interesting book where he outlines all of his research and his conceptualizations of self-control and its failures and then strategies to overcome. And the way he conceptualizes, the model that he uses to explain why we struggle at self-control is based on what he calls a hot system and a cold system. Right? The hot system is based in terms of, of our brain, for those who like neuroscience, is based on the limbic system. That's more of the, what's sometimes referred to as more of the emotional brain, the animalistic brain, um, which might be an oversimplification or perhaps even slightly 
whatever, it's a debate about that. Um, but the cold system is the prefrontal cortex. That's the part of our, our brain up, up in the front that does the, the real thinking, the you, the executive part of, of, you, of who you are. So the hot system, if you look at the little summary over here, the hot system is the emotional system. It's a simple, it's reflexive, it's fast, it's, it's impetuous. Uh, it's based on the amygdala, the part of the brain within the limbic system. And in contrast, the cool system is cognitive, it's thought-related, it's complex, it's reflective, it's slow. For those who are familiar with the work of Daniel Kahneman, he has a book that relates to this called Thinking Fast and Slow. Daniel Kahneman's a, uh, a, a Jewish, uh, is actually the Nobel, the only psychologist to win the Nobel Prize in Economics because his research on this concept of what's called thinking fast and slow related to this hot and cold system explains why it was a paradigm shifting within the fields of economics that people don't make decisions based necessarily on just their rational brains. Rather, they make decisions based on the hot system and that sort of throws off, threw off economic theory and created a whole new system called behavioral economics. Pretty interesting stuff for those who are interested. So you can check out his book, Thinking Fast and Slow. But for now, to use Michelle's concept, it's the hot system and the cold system. And what it really comes down to is that when we are in the moment and we're hot right now, so we're emotional, we're reflexive, we're fast, we're impetuous. What we need to do is to cool the now, right? To become, take that hot and sort of pour cold water on it so that we don't react in the heat of the moment because usually what that will do will mean that I'm only going to have one marshmallow or the theoretical equivalent to that, right? I'm, I'm going to give in to that desire, to the tava, to the, to the impetuousness. So I need to learn strategies to cool that now. But just as important is I also need strategies to heat the later. Because what we do poorly is view the importance of things in the future. So what we need to do, and this will become clear as we go through the strategies, is make the future, the goal that we're trying to get to, which is so far off, it's so abstract, it's not here right now, physically, I, I sense it, I feel it. So it, it's very enticing to go with the now. And the future is like, yeah, that's so far off, that's not me, that's, that's somebody down the road. So we need to be able to take the cool, we need to cool the now, and we need to heat the later to make that much more passionate and us fiery about the future goals. So this is actually pretty fascinating because you get this idea within Perke Elbos as well. Uh, you have a mission that's very difficult to understand or at least can be expl explained in several different ways. Uh, Mishnah Gimel, Perek Gimel Mishnah Bays says, have a kal l'rosh v'noach l'tishchoret. So, they translate it here from Safaria, be suppliant to a superior. So Kalarosh means in this, we're going to disagree with this in a second, but Kalarosh means that when there's somebody who's a Rosh, who's a head, who's a, who's a leader, who's a teacher, who's a uh, you know, person of power, you should be quick to give in to them. Right? Be easy to somebody in power. And uh, be submissive 
uh, when you are forced to do something. So it's one way to understand the mission, which is basically is like know your place, know your role, and submit and subvert yourself to, to other people. But the Perke Moshe's, or Moshe Amos Nino, is not very well known unless you're learning Perke Abos in depth. Um, you know, he doesn't really get the standard uh, Mifarish who people learn in, in regular, uh, you know, yeshiva settings. But it's very fascinating uh, commentary from uh, the late Middle Ages, early modern period, where he writes, Uvechein Amar Ashalim Hazet. When something is intel, in, based on my intelligence, to use the terminology that we've used until this point, it's based on my prefrontal cortex, right? And to foreshadow where we're going to go with this, just to make it clear, if it's part of the thinking, cold, cool system, when you thought it through, it's reflective. You know what you're talking about. Shehu harosh. Right? So rosh means your head, meaning your brain, meaning your thinking part of your brain. Right? right? So he says that the the brain, the thinking, the seichel is in your is in your head. So if it's something that's head, intellect related, then jump at it. Do it. Right? Once you've reflected and you know it's the right thing to do, then be kal, be easy to do things that are based in your rosh, meaning based in your intellect. So if you've thought it through, it's the cool system, then, right, if it's the cool system, what's the problem? If it's a cool system, I might not go and do anything about it because I'm not passionate about it. I'm not heated about it. I'm thought through. I'm cold. I'm cool. I'm rational. So therefore, you have to motivate yourself and be kal, be quick to go and to go and do those things based on the intellect. In contrast, the second paragraph, Amnam when it's emotional, when it's reactive, the hot the hot system. Mashiorala ha pit omiut, right? Pitom, it's sudden, it's impetuous. Then don't do it quickly. Slow down. Be slow, be heavy, think about it, think it through, and don't do it impetuously. So now taking that back just for textual sake to see how that fits in the words. So if you go back, it says, have a kal l'rosh. When it comes to things that are rosh, that are head, that are intellect, in our terminology, that are cold, do those. Jump on those because you thought it through. You know what's right. But if it's tishoret, which he's translating here as impetuous, which is uh, something that is pitom, that is sudden, then be noach, slow down. Right. So this is this is the exact point. When something's in the hot system, we gotta cool it down, slow down, don't act. When something's in the intellect, we gotta heat that up. Then we gotta go and be passionate about it and follow through on it. More often than not, we do the other, right? We are, we are prone to act based on the emotional, based on the impetuousness, based on the quick. So we do it quickly. And when we're thinking about it, we just get stuck in our thoughts and we don't actually act on it. So the best way is to cool the now and heat the later. So how do we do this? How does A 
understand how is it that the system, that we get fooled by the system, and then B, how do we compensate for it? How do we, how do we come back and, and beat the system? So for those who are, are Seinfeld fans, there's a, a famous uh, beginning of an episode where Jerry does his, his stand-up, and he distinguishes between night guy and morning guy. And the basic point here is that, and we'll just do the quote, but I'll elaborate so it makes sense. It says, night guy wants to stay up late. What about getting up after five hours of sleep? Eh, that's morning guy's problem. That's not my problem. I'm night guy. I want to stay up as late as I want. Right? And this really is, he's, you know, comedically creates a, a system that that's probably, it's funny because it's true and, and most of us can relate to it, is that we have two parts to us. And, and this can be night guy, morning guy, or it could be other two different parts to us that one part is just convinced that everything they're doing is right. And the other part disagrees and doesn't understand the first part. And we have these two dueling parts to us. Night guy knows, wants to have fun. Night guy wants to stay up late. And morning guy wants, you know, always regrets the fact that night guy stayed up, stayed up late. But the point is that it sounds like, like morning guy has no control over night guy, even though it's the same, we're the same person, but it's like two separate beings living within the same body. So what we, what, what, what part of this is, it's what's called, what Michelle calls the hot, cold empathy gap, which means that when we're in one system, we don't really empathize with the other system. So when I'm in a hot system, I don't really get cold system guy. And when I'm in a cold system, I don't really understand hot system me. Even though I'm the same person, because what happens in our brain is our brain is is literally different, right? If you did neuroimaging studies and you studied the you saw what parts of the brain were lighting up at different times, our brains are different when we are in a hot stage versus when we're in a cold stage. And that means that we're thinking differently, we're paying attention to different things, we're perceiving things differently. Even our memory systems change between a cold state and a hot state. So it's like, just like it's hard to empathize and to understand other people, sometimes when we're in one state, it's hard to empathize and understand our own selves when we are in a different state. Right? So to give you an example you're probably uh, aware of, you've probably experienced, and it's, they've done research on this or some studies on this. If anybody wants any sources for the studies, uh, feel free to email me and I'll, I'll send you. I have uh, uh, Mari Makomos for all the, the, the Torah stuff as well as the psychology stuff. But there's an you know, interesting study where we, you know, when somebody goes shopping, right? so this is just simple advice. Don't go shopping when you're hungry. Because when you go shopping when you're hungry, you're going to buy too many things. Because you, when you're hungry, is predicting how you will be in an hour from now based on your hunger state in the moment. But hot, cold empathy gap, you aren't actually correctly predicting how you're going to be in an hour from now. So you you are going to overbuy the amount of stuff that you actually need, right? So if you go to, you know, you go to Golan or you go where and you're, you're starving, right? So you buy, you know, one of this and one of that and one of the other things. And then you're, 
I guess you could probably finish it all if you're if you really are so inclined. But you're usually stuffed after you know half of a lafa because right, we're predicting we're going to eat so much, but we don't really know how much we're going to need because our predictions are based off of the hot state, and those change very quickly when we're in the cold state. On the flip of that. Um, and, and here's really where we run into to more problems based on what we're talking about, is our inability – so we, right now we just did an example of how when we're in a hot state, we can't predict a cold state, so we make the wrong decisions, we buy too much stuff. It's also a problem we're in a cold state, we don't predict our hot state. Right? So it's one thing, to go back to the Seinfeld metaphor, right? it's one thing for night guy – not to understand morning guy, but when morning guy doesn't understand night guy, then we don't put up systems. That's when we don't actually work to control correctly for night guy because we're making assumptions based on morning guy, but morning guy is not the same person as night guy. So if you make strategies as morning guy, that doesn't account for night guy's personality, then you are not going to make the right strategies. So what we end up doing is we overestimate. When we're in that good mood, we're in that good space, and we're cold, and it's the morning, and we feel good, we forget how bad it was at night, right? We forget that it was that hard to control ourselves. So we aren't able to fully put in the systems to control ourselves later at night. Right? So, so let's I'll give you another example. So let's say I'm trying to, to, to watch what I'm eating. Right? So for the, from the morning until eight, nine o'clock, I might be great having my salads and having my, you know, eating healthy portion control and all that stuff. And I'm thinking to myself, look, I got this. I, I'm good. And then what happens, right? We get tired, and now all of a sudden we're starting to get more into that night guy status, which we're equating here with more of a, a hot status, right? We're losing our ability, our self-control is depleted, and now all of a sudden it gets much easier to, you know, stuff our faces with whatever's available in our dorm room or wherever, because we're not the same person that we were at five o'clock or at two o'clock or at 10 o'clock. So what this is called in, in the literature is called the restraint bias. It's one aspect of this is that I don't, I, I overestimate my ability to control myself. Right? So another example, we'll stick with the diet. Let's say I'm really good with my diet for two weeks. I'm not promoting dieting or, or whatever, but let, let's instead of dieting, let's call it healthy eating. Let's say I'm good with healthy eating for two weeks. And then, right, so I'm, I'm you know, going to speak to your nutritionist or your doctor to figure out exactly how to do this, but I'm, you know, portion controlling, I'm weighing my food, I'm, I'm doing all that stuff, I'm doing it well. And I'm, I'm keeping tabs and I'm, I'm, you know, putting all it into the into the apps and, you know, they have a calculation of all the calories I'm eating. And I'm great for two weeks and I've lost five pounds, 10, I, I'm, I'm great. And then all of a sudden, like, ah, okay, this isn't so bad. I got this. And then oh, I don't really have to put that much work into this because I'm, I'm doing good. So I don't have to, I don't have to keep track of this. I don't have to put it into the app now. I got, I, I got it. I got it. That's the restraint bias because that's the beginning of the end. 
Right? Once you start letting that guard down and you think you you think you're in a good spot is when the self-control failure is going to happen again. So we see this in, in Perkei Avos, Ezu Gibor Kovesh Yitzro. And who is strong, who's mighty? Somebody who conquers his impulses. So why does it say Kovesh? Right? Kovesh means to, uh, to overcome. It's not the strongest word you can use. In theory, you could use a word like Mechaleh or Me'abed. To destroy, right? Who's strong? Somebody who totally obliterates his Yetzirah or her Yetzirah. So if you look here in the, the second source, the Rimi Toledo, he says, he quotes the, the Rebar Shlomo, the reason he uses the word kovesh to conquer, but not to destroy or obliterate, because you can never fully destroy your Yetzirah. And it's a very important point, and this is the essence of the restraint bias. It's always there. It's always looming, right? That hot state is always threatening. So the second you let your guard down and think it's not is when we're going to get caught in that state. So as difficult as this sounds, and it does sound pretty difficult, it's really important to keep in mind is that what we really want to be doing is not letting our guard down. Now we will, we will not just stop there because that sounds very hard, right? So you're saying I have to keep my guard up 24 seven for the rest of my life. Otherwise I'm going to fail in self-control, right? I don't have enough energy to do that, right? Might as well throw in the towel now. Um, so, that's not the, the way we want to go, but it's important to keep this in mind as we will then combine it with other strategies. But it's really important that we acknowledge that, A, we don't fully empathize or understand the other state when we're in the opposite state. And that will become, we'll develop that a little bit more as well. And because of that, in addition to that, we don't want to let our guards down because once we let our guard down and we think, oh, we got this, then we're probably going to end up falling into the trap again. So the, the second problem that we do in our cold states, besides for just um, the restraint bias, is called delayed discounting. Right, so let's say I offered you $5 now or $20 tomorrow, right? What would you take? Probably most people here would take $20 tomorrow. It's sort of the equivalent of, of a marshmallow test, right? You can have, you know, one now or double later or quadruple later. But let's say you can have $5 now and $20 a year from now. What would you take? Right? And, and let's say we continue to vary that, that, duration of time so that that this whole concept is that studied is called delayed discounting how much is it worth for you to push off getting money or something now versus in the future and depending how long you're willing to wait meaning in theory that twenty dollars a year from now is is a much better bet than the five dollars now again depends on how how interest rates are and the like right but that's 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 you're making money for for just doing nothing you're just waiting 
right? So in theory, more money later is always better. But as you can probably imagine, there's a point where certain types of people will always take the $5 now. Uh, it might depend how much other money you have in the bank. It might depend how much you, you know, what you want to buy with that $5. But the, that vary, that the variation between somebody who takes the money now versus invest till later, that's the, that study is called delayed discounting. And to some extent, that, that's all what we're dealing with when it comes to, to self-control in general. Right. Again, so it's an extension of the marshmallow test. Right. On some, one aspect of this, if you hear, look in uh, Avos Perak Bey's Mishnah Aleph, have a mechashev hefseid mitzvah keneged schara v'schara veira keneged hefseida. Right. So we want to calculate the loss that we get from fulfilling a mitzvah now and contrast that to the reward we would get later. And so this is actually be, be, being pretty realistic. Right, doing good in the moment has a cost. Right, giving up something now for the future, there's a cost that for that right now. So the question is, when I'm deciding, do I want to do what's good now or not? Well, if I do what's good now, it's going to cost me. It's hard. It's difficult. It's much easier not to do. It's much easier to procrastinate. It's much easier to do the easier thing. But contrast that with the schar with the reward you're going to get later and if you're able to do that and you're able to realize that in uh, from a religious perspective this whole world is is a delayed discounting experiment right it's it's how much can you sacrifice now for you know the next world or if you want to put it more in 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 this worldly sense and and put next world out of the picture for a second, this again is just a restatement of how much are you willing to sacrifice now for a benefit in a year from now, in two years from now, in 10 years from now, in in 50 years from now. And then the flip of that is the schar avera negative seda. The avera, meaning the temptation or whatever it is we're giving into, feels good now. That's the hot state. That's what feels good right now. There's a schar to the Avera, meaning there's a benefit, a pleasure that comes along with the Avera. But we want to calculate that against the hefseid, the, the loss. Where's the loss? The loss is 20 years from now, or the loss is five years from now. The loss is 10, right? I'm smoking cigarettes. So I'm doing that. So there's, there's a hanan now, there's a benefit now. The hefseid is in the future. It's delayed. So my brain doesn't think about that. It's, it's a discounted consequence. Rashi here, we're not going to look at it inside, but basically spells out uh, w- what we just said in, in a little bit more more detail. So, so how do we deal with this? Right, this is this is basically the big picture. Right now, the bad feels good. Right, that what's bad for me in the long run feels good, so it's more tempting. It's what I want to do, and the good that's going to come in the long run is too abstract. It's too far off. So, how do I calculate that? How do I how do I get there? So if you, if you look in the Mepharshim, in, in the commentaries on, on Perkevels and in other places as well, they will tell you that it's important to actually use visualization. And visualization is, is the act of just picturing, thinking, predicting what things are going to be. So what you can do with visualization is you can make the future present. And that's really the crux of our self-control issues because the future is too far off and I don't see the consequences. 
So through visualization, we're able to take that, use our imagery, to use our imagination, to bring that future to the present. And based on that, I can now better make a decision that's good for me in the long run. So let's let's continue with the smoking metaphor, uh, smoking example. If I if I smoke now, so I might not feel that consequence. It might not feel any consequence. It just might be positive. It might not be any negative feelings in the current moment. Where are the negatives probably going to come about? Ten years, thirty years, fifty years down the road. So how do I get that ten, thirty, fifty years down the road? into the moment now to help me not smoke this cigarette. So we can use our visualization. And, and I know we're, we're running out of time-ish, um, so I'm gonna, we're not going to do this inside. I'll just do it outside. Uh, but what you basically have both in, and you find this in the, in the Torah literature as well as in psychological literature, is is it better to do negative visualizations or positive visualizations. Meaning, there are some studies that say that if you can, in that moment, visualize your lungs like with cancer, right? Just visualize a terrible image. Visualize terrible breath, uh, rotting teeth, right? All of those dire negative visual, you know, imageries that would come up if you follow through in the long run, that's a way to bring that future negative into the present now to help deter you from making that decision in the current moment, right? So if you bring it into the world of, of dieting, uh, again, uh, let's, let's not use dieting, but eating healthy, dieting is a, sort of like a dirty word in some, in some, uh, some spheres, right? But eating healthy, right? If I eat this one donut, this one donut, I don't see any negative consequences. It doesn't go straight to my to my stomach, right? But if I compound that with other donuts and sort of put it together in the sense that I'm not just eating this one donut, but I'm eating other non-healthy foods and those things go together, then if I picture what's going on in my body and all the sort of negative things that are happening and my arteries getting clogged and, and, and all that future and make it vivid in an imagery right now, that could help me from, I don't want to ruin your donuts. You can still have donuts, right? But, but you know, that, that'll help me if I need to work on my self-control. That'll help me in the current moment. That's what the what some research says, and that you'll find here in Reviosif Yaivitz. He says to use this negative imagery. And you find this, you know, type of thought uh, a lot in terms of thinking about sin and fear of sin and punishment. And if, if you really bring that to the fore and think about it now, that can help deter you from doing things in the future. But others, both the Abarbanel here, and again, mirrored in, in the modern psychology literature, says thinking negative isn't the greatest thing. It's not the greatest strategy because chances are people don't want to think about that. So they're going to avoid it. They're not going to want to think negative imagery. So it's much better to think positive imagery. So in that moment to think, uh, here, just to give you the, the religious imagery that the Abarbanel uses, he says it's based on the Mishnah Gimel Yadalid, when Rabbi Kiva tells us, Chaviv Adam Shiniver B'Tselem, 
How great is, is a person that they're created with the image of God? And Abarbanel says is that is actually in contrast to all the neg. He makes it explicit in contrast to all the negative imagery that you can see from the pre from the Mishnah on the left hand side here of looking at histaka b'shoshetvarim. Look at three things and you won't be be be, uh, be tempted to sin. You know, know where you came and you know where you're going and who you're going to give. Uh, Din Bechashbon, uh, an accounting before, that negative imagery. In contrast, this mission is about positive imagery. Think about how great you are and how amazing you are and how spiritual and holy you are. And that imagery can help say, okay, that's not somebody who does this act. That's not somebody who does this negative act now. So you're able to vividly create a positive imagery to help you get through the current moment of temptation. And, and there is, again, the research shows that if I'm able to uh, create a positive imagery, uh, even if it's a neutral positive imagery, just imagining, uh, you know, a nice uh, beach can, or, or whatever good sort of moment you can think of in your brain of a place that, that's sort of a calm, peaceful place, having that imagery can help cool down the heat of that current desire and help you push off and not actually do what you are tempted to do in that moment. This one, uh, this is the third one. We're going to do it very quickly because it's, uh, it's not as good as the fourth one. Third one is just slippery slope. You've all uh, presumably come across a slippery slope, which basically means you start small and then you get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, right? So nobody, nobody starts off saying I'm going to steal, you know, embezzle a million dollars from my business. But when I start with, you know, a dollar and then two dollars and three dollars, and it all of a sudden becomes big, easier and easier and easier and easier, and then you know it can get, uh, can sort of get snowball out of hand. Um, and, and that's what the slippery slope does on, a, hopefully, on a smaller level um, uh, in terms of our self control, right? We start with little self control failures a minor thing that we let go and then over time that builds and builds and builds and builds to the point where now it's too late. So I had, you know, one drink and that one drink to another drink or I drank one night and then another night and then another night. before I know it, I'm now drinking every single night uh, or whatever the, the case may be. So slippery slope, the contrast to slippery slope is just to be very mindful of the effect of slippery slope is that to stop yourself before you do that original problem behavior that's even though it's small to realize that that small behavior compounds over time and serves as as a gateway to other things so you know there's context here in Perkevos we're just going to skip it for the sake of time and that leads us to our last strategy I guess if we have time at the end uh, after questions and people want me to go back to it and, and look at inside I'll be happy to um, but the, the last one which I think is probably the most important one so what we've seen until now, just to sort of recap, to frame what this is all about, is that we have hot and cold states. We have times where we are on board, we're good with our self-control, we know what we got to do, and we're, and, and we're there. But that's only when we're in a cold state. At other points in time, we flip to a hot state. When we're in a hot state, we're not doing as well. And, and we don't really, all of the strategies that we've used in the cold state might not be effective in the hot state. And because of that, we need to be on guard. We can't let our guards down. That's the restraint bias. Um, and we need to be aware of the fact that we discount the importance of the future and we overemphasize the importance of the now 
So in order to count, contrast that, counter that, we really want to use our imagery to highlight, to heat up the future, right? Make the future more vivid, make the future more real, and cool down the intensity of the current moment. And be aware that small little actions snowball through the through the slippery slope. But what, what's probably going to happen no matter what is that there are going to be situations that are going to, there are going to be states of mind where are going to be very hard to control. It's going to be very hard to control. So how do we compensate for that? How do we deal with morning guy doesn't understand night guy? And this is where environmental control comes in. Environmental control means we need to set up the environment around us to remove and reduce the amount of challenges and the amount of opportunities we have to slip up. If, going back to my example, one of my examples from before, I'm trying to eat healthy and I'm doing good. It's 8 o'clock in the morning, 12 o'clock in the afternoon, 6 o'clock at night. I'm great. And now all of a sudden it's 10 o'clock at night. And now I'm in the hot state. And I'm not able to control myself. And I'm thinking, I'm, I'm really trying. I'm, I'm putting in my, all my work. I'm vividly imagining myself. If I eat this entire bag of potato chips, it's going to, it's going to cause me problems. I can imagine the, the arteries getting clogged. I can imagine, you know, the extra three pounds that I'm going to put on, right? I'm, I'm vividly there, but it's still, it's very hard. There is another option. Don't have potato chips in your dorm room. That's environmental control. Not to have the alcohol in the house. Not to have the food in the house. Not that whatever that temptation is, is to not put it in front of you. So part of this is, is what it's called in literature pre-commitment device. Uh, it's based on, on something. There's a, a famous example of this with uh, Ulysses, but we'll save that for literature classes. Uh, but that's the picture on the, on the left-hand side. The, the point here is that if we can do things to avoid our ability to act in our hot state, so we're taking our cold state, and we know that when I'm in a cold state, I'm, I'm acknowledging I have an empathy gap, and I'm not going to be able to fully predict what's going to happen in the hot state. But if I can do something now that's going to remove the issue, it's going to take it away so that even when I'm in a hot state, there's nothing I can do about it. My hands are tied. I'm literally chained up to a pole. I can't do anything. That's an incredible strategy to help with self-control because I can do it when I'm in a cold state. So, Practical examples, right? Again, there's some uh, just perky elbows wise. Asusiagla Torah, very common idea. Making a fence for Torah, making a fence for Midos uh, is, is very essential. Midarim Siagla Precious, as Rabbi Kiva tells us, uh, we want to make vows or commitments to help us avoid self control failures because, again, the self control failure on its own is going to happen unless we do something about it. So Nidharam, to take a vow, was used to be a very effective technique um, because it 
you know, people used to be afraid of violating the vows. Nowadays, most commentaries already back in the medieval times said, don't, even in the Gemara says, don't make a vow because you might not follow through on the vow either. But the, the concept is the same. It's a pre-commitment device. I'm telling myself that I am going to double down and avoid the battle in the first place that I'm going to set the situation up that I can't fail. Right. So one, uh, one example of that would be to give, you know, it's finals time, give your social media password uh, to your friend and have them switch it until finals are over. That's a pre-commitment device because now I can't go on social media. I have no choice. Or, you know, an extreme, let's take an extreme example, right? Take my phone and, you know, lock it in storage for, for a week because I, I can't stop scrolling down on, on, on Facebook. That's a pre-commitment device. I don't have the choice now. I can't do anything about it. Now, it's hard to make that commitment, but to the extent that we can not buy the foods, avoid the situation, do something that prevents us from, I have no, I can't give in to this temptation because it's not there. It doesn't exist. That's the best way to overcome self-control problems because there's just otherwise there's too much temptation that's come that's coming about. It's happening too often. It's too much confrontation, and eventually there's a decent chance you're going to let your restraints down. Um, and all of the strategies about visualization, those are all great, but at some point it's not going to be enough. And that's why this is really essential to to adding to the to the discussion. I'll close. I know uh, we're, we're basically out of time, but I'll close with with one piece in terms of how this applies to studying. I promised you in the beginning we would do this. Um, in terms of what we call self-regulated learning, the ability to control our own environment when it comes to our studying habits that make it the most conducive for our success. Right. So depending where you are now, if you're in the dorms, you're at home, wherever it is, there might be a lot of noise, there might be a lot of distraction, maybe from other people, maybe again, it's your phone, maybe it's it's whatever it is, a lot of distractions. So if, um, the uh, Mishnah says, uh, Shammai says, I say Torah keba, to make your study fixed. So the Tiferes Yisrael has a, a beautiful explanation, five different possibilities of what keba means. We'll just do one of them but they're all actually relevant to effective studying techniques. So maybe at a different time we can do uh, you know, study techniques based on, on Torah and psychology. But uh, the, the second one here is, is related to, to self-control and setting up the environment. So he says, Yesh gam kein b'mashma'ut milat keva inyan menucha. menucha tanefesh. Part of keva is being calm. Don't learn in a place that's distracting. There's too much going on. There's too much noise. Oshar Inyan Marish, anything that's that's making, you know, that's that's distracting you. Shakol Elu Mashbitim Hahavana Vatfisa Vazikaran. All these things, all the distractions, every time you get a pin, a notification, any time that happens, it destroys understanding and grasping of the material and memory, the formation of memories. Rock yellow makam hit bodedut vachkatel mudo have a place that's quiet. Because that's gonna help you understand and learn better. 
have a nice place. You can, you know, uh, have a lot of light, um, have a nice, you want to set up your studying in a way that's very relaxing. That's, a, that's, that's very calm. There's not a lot of distractions. And through that, Environment by setting up your environment in such a way, you're going to be happy, you're going to be calm, and that's going to help with learning. And, and take away a lot of the stress that you're going through. And that's going to help you learn and internalize. So, the you know, one takeaway that I would say for immediate consumption is self control. By, for studying, by adapting your environment, by going to a place that's quiet, by, I think most importantly in terms of, of probably what most of, most of us struggle with in terms of, of studying, it's so essential to get your phone out of the room. Don't study with your phone. Right, if, like if you're if you're getting the notifications, if you're scrolling down, if you're checking Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, whatever you're doing, if you're doing that, even if there's studies that show this, and again we've all experienced it, even if your phone is off or, or it's like you're, it's not you're not actively touching it, like it's just it's it, it's a I would say in, in Talmudic terminology, it's a chefza of distraction, right? It, it itself creates distraction. Because that's just what it is. It's a it's a whole being. Its entity is to distract. So if you want to focus, do the pre-commitment device, the, the pre-commitment technique. Get your phone out of your room. Focus, study, try to go in a place that's quiet. That's the best strategy for self-control in the moment when it comes to when it comes to learning. So we saw uh, the hot cold empathy gap. Uh, those two systems that. In- really create our problem with self-control. We don't understand the other system well. Um, and we saw a bunch of different strategies in order to overcome that. Some of them are to basically to make the future more important and discount the importance of the, the present um, and then try to create systems and environments that avoid our ability to to fail in the moment. Um, uh, could take a few questions if you want, though everybody here uh, could have my uh, information for catching up, following up, uh, you can search the YU system uh, for my email, but here it is, mordechashifman.yu.edu. I write a weekly Tvar Torah. If you like psychology and the Parsha or psychology and Torah, psychfortorah.com. You can subscribe. I have uh, uh, weekly Divrei Torah tying a psychology and the Parsha. You can follow me, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, all that good stuff on social media, but not during studying. Do not do it while you're studying. Um, okay, I, I hope this was helpful. And again, I'm, I'm available for a little bit to take any questions if anybody has any, any questions. Sorry if this went a little bit over. Can we go back to the um, main screen so we can see if anyone's raising their hands? Or... Yeah, I have a question. Sure. So what's the psychology of procrastination? How does that fit in here? Yeah, so it's 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 very similar. I mean, there there is its own sort of field uh, of procrastination, which overlaps with this. Um, it gets a little complicated. I would start off in in a similar fashion that a lot of times people think procrastination is just laziness, and it's usually more complicated than that. Um, oftentimes, procrastination has to do with anxiety. 
Um, and, and once that's the case, it gets a little you know, more difficult to deal with because it, it, it would take a lot of self-awareness to understand what sort of self-defeating thoughts you're having that's leading to the procrastination. Um, but overall, uh, you know, a lot of these strategies would technically work. So something like a, a pre-commitment device um, by saying, you know, I'm going to by, by committed through sort of uh, I have a deadline. Let's say I have a, you, you sort of create false deadlines. So I have a deadline in, uh, you know, my papers due in, in two months from now. Um, but I'm committing to myself by posting on we'll use social media for, for the good here, right? I'm, I'm committing by posting publicly on social media that I will get this done by X and Y date. So that's a way to sort of motivate, motivate yourself through, through social positive social pressure uh, to be able to, to get things done. Uh, there's a website that's called stick.com S T I C K K two K's.com is uh, designed by uh, professors of psychology at Yale university, uh, which helps for both procrastination and self-control issues. And it's all based on this similar uh, themes and, and logic um, is that it, you can create a system where either publicly or personally uh, you create penalties for yourself uh, if you don't follow through on your commitments, right? So sometimes we just, we commit to something. We say, okay, I'm going to do this. Um, and, and then we just let, but there's no consequence, right? It's not like first grade or, or, or seventh grade or wherever somebody's looking over you and your parents are yelling at you and, you know, you didn't do your homework and whatever, like nobody cares anymore, right? It's just, it's just you. Um, so sometimes our commitment uh, you know, that sort of responsibility that we have to take on ourselves, it's hard to do because it's very easy to get distracted and it's very easy to procrastinate. So what these websites do, again, it's part of the same same idea, is that I commit to, let's say, if I don't get this done by next week, I will give, uh, you know, $50 to charity. Um, and, and the way the system works is that you actually have to give that money up front, right? So you give the money. And then if you don't follow through on your commitment, then the money gets the, – the website pays the, the money to somebody, right? So it's, it's a way to, to motiv- – you're basically using external motivators to, and punishments to, uh, to push you forward in the process of, of studying and, and uh, getting things done. Um, but it's a good question. In, in theory, it, over, while there are overlapping themes, um, you know, it would be sort of its own – hour-long presentation just uh, talking about procrastination. Thank you. Anybody else? Would that not cause more anxiety? Because now you have a shorter amount of time to actually do something, and you may have to do something bad that you may not want to. Well, assuming it's not charity. Charity is pretty good to do. But. Yeah, again, you have to be realistic. Um you know, I, I would say, you know, there. You have to know yourself. You have to. You have to know how well you can do it. Um, you know, if you're just going to create more anxiety and still not get it done, then then that's not a great strategy. Um, if if it just if it's helpful, then then use it, right? So I, I think it would depend on on the personality. But you're correct that there might be some types of personalities. Uh, who who it might not be helpful with, um, but you know, 
the doomsday device doesn't work doesn't work for everybody as as it were. Um, yeah, tomorrow. It's funny because I found this to be very relatable on so many levels. Like, even today, I went into the kitchen. I have a sweet tooth, and I was like, I really, really want you know candy or something, and I couldn't find any. I was like, all right, I guess it's a sign I shouldn't have any candy right now, even though I knew it was the right call was not to have candy. But the fact that I couldn't help find any made it even easier. Yeah, and for sure, when it's not there, you know, it's uh, it could have elaborated on this point also. I, I um, there's a whole set set of skills in a therapy called dialectical behavior therapy DBT um, that deals with what's called distress tolerance skills. Um, and what distress tolerance skills are basically when you're in this hot state, uh, when you're emotionally engaged or aroused in a in a way that's not getting you where you want to go, whether it's anger or, uh, or Taiva or whatever it is. Um, they have various strategies to move yourself from a hot state to a cold state. Actually, as we're talking, I'll bring this up for you. I, I think I just wrote about this. 